0: Well, this morning we're continuing in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as we've been working our way through this glorious passage on unity. The title of this sermon is Spiritual Unity in the Body, the Action. The Action. And this morning we're going to be looking at the greatest virtue of all. The virtue above all virtues. We're going to see that if you want to have true joy in your life, that this must be a virtue that you have and that you practice in your life. In fact, the lack of this virtue is the explanation for the evil in this world. The lack of this virtue is the reason why man fights and quarrels specifically, in the context of our passage, it's the reason why disunity exists in the church. The greatest virtue of all that we are going to look at this morning is humility. Humility. Andrew Murray said this about humility, humility, the place of of entire dependence on God is, from the very nature of things, the first duty and highest virtue of the creature. In fact, it is the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. You've probably heard a preacher point out before that the middle letter of sin is what? I. I. What's at the heart of sin? Pride. Pride. But when we humble ourselves and think not just lowly of ourselves, but think nothing of ourselves that is when we will find the greatest joy in life. And Paul knows that if that virtue is practiced in the church at Philippi, it will make his joy complete. Because in humility, there will then be unity. And that's the action that he's calling the Philippian believers to As he's been urging them to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And specifically as a a unified church who seeks to live their lives bringing glory and honor to the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't already I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians 2. And let me read our passage for us. Philippians 2 beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, as we've been looking at this passage, we saw first in verse 1, Paul's appeal to the Philippians in their pursuit of unity in the church. And he appealed to their position in Christ, that as believers in Christ, because of what Christ has done in their lives, they should therefore be pursuing unity in the church. They should be a unified church. What they've received, because they are children of God, who have been chosen by God, And because of what God has done in their lives, it is that reality that should motivate them to be unified. And it's those realities that should motivate us to be unified in the church. Last week we saw the attitudes that Paul calls the Philippian church to have as they pursue unity. And this has to do with their mind. With the attitudes in their mind, that is, our minds or our thinking is connected with our attitudes. It's connected with our attitudes. And what Paul is calling for in verse 2 is for believers in the church to be of the same mind. In fact, let me draw your attention back to verse 2 and notice his call to unity. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Fill up my joy, how? By being of the same mind. Being of the same mind is Paul's call to unity in the church. They need to have the same attitudes or be thinking the same thing. They must be unified. And it happens through, notice what he says there, maintaining love, being united in spirit and intent on one purpose or having one mind, thinking one thing, one purpose, one goal. They need to have a loving attitude, an agreeing attitude, and a gospel-centered attitude as they pursue unity in the church. But now we're going to look at the action of pursuing unity. And if we were to boil this down into one word, we could say that the means through which unity is accomplished is humility. Humility. The means through which unity is accomplished in the body of Christ is humility. Humility is the key word. If we do everything in our lives with a heart of humility, we will have unity in the church. Humility is that one word, the key word, but Paul gives us More words than just the one word, humility. And so we're going to take these two verses, verses three and four, and we're going to see five actions to take in order to have unity in the body of Christ. Five actions that we are to take in order to have unity in the body of Christ. But as we look at these five actions, we need to remember the key to accomplishing them is to do it all with a heart of humility, with a humble attitude. Now, as we look at these five actions here, we're going to see that three of them are negative actions. Three of them are things in which we should shun. And then two of them are positive actions. That is, these are things which we should seek. Now, before we get into these five actions, look at verse 3 and notice what it says at the beginning of verse 3 there. Two words, notice, do nothing. Do nothing. We understand in the English language that the word do there implies what? Action. It implies action, that you must do something. And although we have that word there in our English translation, that word is actually not there in the Greek. The word do is not there in the Greek. However, the translators have put it there because that is what is implied by Paul in this verse. It's implied that we take action. In fact, one commentator says that the idea here is even stronger than do nothing. It is don't even think any thoughts motivated by selfish ambition. Don't even think any of these thoughts. Not only do we not act out in this way, but even our minds shouldn't even be thinking in this way. Another commentator says, the addition of a verb of action, do nothing, correctly indicates that the phrase has a force of a moral imperative or a moral command. It's a command for us that we're to act in this way, we're to do something, or to do nothing in this case. And so in pursuing unity in the body of Christ, there are not only attitudes that we must have, but there are actions that we must take As well. But again, where does it all take place? Where does it all start? It all starts in the mind. It starts in the mind. It starts in our thinking. And this is very important for us to understand. Because we always act upon how we think. You will always act out what you think. What you believe. That's why we talk about having the right doctrine. We must have correct doctrine. The right beliefs in our mind. Because you will always act upon what you believe. The mind is so important. Your actions are driven by your mind, by your thinking. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our what? of our mind. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It has to do with our thinking. And so Paul is calling for these actions in the church knowing that it starts in the mind. And the first action that he calls us to is something that we should shun. It's a, it's a negative command here. And that is that we do nothing from selfishness. The first action is that we do nothing from selfishness. Notice what he says there in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness. That word there, selfishness, is the same word that Paul used back in chapter 1 and verse 17. In fact, look back over there with me in chapter 1 and verse 17. Notice what he says here. He says there, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. He speaks of these preachers who are preaching out of selfish ambition or selfishness rather than pure motives. These are self-seeking preachers who, although they were proclaiming Christ, they were doing it with wrong motives, with selfish motives. They were doing it with self-interest in mind. What did these guys want to do? Well, they wanted to puff themselves up and put Paul down while Paul was in prison. In fact, that's what he even says there. At the end of verse 17, he says, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That's what they were after. They wanted to put Paul down while he is there in prison. And in putting Paul down and causing distress or thinking that they're causing him distress, they would then be puffing themselves up or building themselves up. But was it driven by? Selfish ambition. Selfishness. Their heart was to build up their own reputation while knocking Paul down. And Paul was even in prison at this time. Yet they wanted to knock him down and build up their own reputation. And what happens then when people act like this? You have disunity. You have disunity. In fact, another way that you could translate this word selfishness is rivalry. Rivalry. The Holman translation translates it this way do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. That was the attitude of those preachers who were seeking to cause Paul distress. They saw Paul as a rival to them. But Paul didn't see them that way. Paul didn't see them that way. They saw Paul that way as a rival. But Paul didn't see them that way. Paul just rejoiced that Christ was being proclaimed. And how was Paul able to do that? How was Paul able to rejoice in the midst of somebody tearing him down? Or seeking to tear him down? Because he was humble. Because he was humble. Because he wasn't selfish. He wasn't self-seeking. His life wasn't about him. His life was about Christ. And when he heard that they're proclaiming Christ, all he could do is rejoice. He was a humble man who wasn't out to build himself up. But he was humble and therefore able to have joy. This word selfishness was used by Aristotle where it denotes a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. He describes politicians who acted this way, which caused quarreling and strife. They were seeking a political office by unfair means, by putting other people down. And in turn, building themselves up. And when a person acts in a selfish manner by demeaning other people to get their own way, the result is always going to be what? Strife, quarreling, disunity. You won't have unity in an environment like that. And Paul knows that this even happens in the church within the context of the church, which is why he's calling for the church to do nothing from selfishness. There should be no rivals in the church. We're on a team. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're to live our lives to bring glory and honor to Him. There should be no selfishness in the body of Christ. And So if we want to have unity, Our actions must be driven from humility, not from selfishness or self-seeking motives. A second action that we're to shun is empty conceit. Empty conceit. Not only do we do nothing from selfishness, but we do nothing from empty conceit. This now, here, this word empty conceit is the only place where this word appears in the New Testament. And it's a compound word from two Greek words, kenos and doxa. Kenos and doxa. Kenos means empty and doxa means glory. Glory. You've probably heard the word doxology, giving glory. And so we could say that this word here means empty glory or vainglory. One translation of this is even empty pride. Empty pride. And this is a person who seeks to promote their own glory. They're out to promote their own glory. This is a a prideful person who has an erroneous opinion of themselves. They've got an erroneous opinion of themselves because they think too highly of themselves. Which is a wrong way to think about themselves. They think too much of themselves, and they set themselves up and try and put themselves on display to show off their glory, when in reality all that is is just a facade. It's just it's a false illusion, but all they're focused on is building themselves up. They want to put themselves out in front of people and build themselves up. They're egotistical and conceited people who think only of themselves. You've probably met someone like this before in your life. Someone who is egotistical and conceited, a hotshot, know it all. But you know that they really don't know what they're talking about. That's a person. That has empty conceit. That is filled with empty conceit. But why do they do it? Why do they act in that manner? Why do they act in that way? Because they're trying to gain glory for who? For themselves. They want glory for themselves. But this is the total opposite of how Christ acted. The total opposite of how Christ acted. In fact, look down at verse 8. Chapter 2 and verse 8 notice what Paul says there. Speaking of Christ, he says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What did Christ do? He humbled himself. And what did God do then? He exalted Christ. He exalted the humble Christ. People who are seeking their own glory are prideful people who think too highly of themselves. And what does God say about the proud person? Let me tell you what God says about the proud person. James 4.6 says this, But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the person who is acting with empty conceit or vain glory, seeking to build themselves up. Why? Why is God opposed to the proud? Because who is the only one that's worthy of glory? He is. He is the only one that is worthy of glory. God is the only one who deserves all glory. And He won't share His glory with anyone. Isaiah 42, 8 tells us. God will share His glory with no one. Empty conceit or... Vain glory or selfish ambition, as some translations translate this, seeks to take the glory that belongs only to God and give it to self. It wants to attract attention and, and seek to win praise, or out to, to get praise for themselves. And here's how these two words in this, this verse are related to each other. Selfishness and empty conceit. These two words have a relationship to one another. Selfishness is knocking another person down, such as the the preachers were doing to Paul while he was in prison. Selfishness is knocking another person down in order to build yourself up, while empty conceit is setting oneself up. But both of them are acting in a way that is self-seeking and self-promoting. And having empty conceit, you may not knock another person down, but you're definitely trying to build yourself up. Those are negative actions. Negative actions, things that we should shun in the body of Christ in order to have unity in the body of Christ. We need to shun these things. We cannot practice these things if we want to have unity in the body of Christ. And so those are the two negative actions, the things that we should shun. Let's move to a third action, which is what we are to seek. That is, this is a positive one. A third action is that we are to humbly regard others as more important. That we're to humbly regard others as more important. Notice verse 3 again. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. After giving two negatives of what not to do, Paul then seeks to contrast that with what we are to do. and what are we to do? We're to regard others as more important than ourselves. The Greek word there for regard was used as, as a mathematical term, which meant to think about something and come to a conclusion. We could translate this as, as count or consider or reckon or calculate even and the idea that Paul is conveying here is this that you you estimate the interests of others you consider the the interests of other people then you take your own interests and you subtract those and that equals what should be of importance to you That's the math equation. You consider the interests of others, you take your own interests, you subtract them, and that equals what must be of importance to us, which is the interest of others, right? It's a simple math equation. Your interests minus my interests is what's important. And this is not something that is done as some momentary act of politeness. Like holding the door for someone else or giving a quick compliment to someone. Oh, I'm considering their interest because I'm going to give them a quick compliment. Do something nice for them. But this has the idea of of engaging in an intellectual process and considering or pondering in your mind the other person as more important than yourself. That's the idea here that Paul has in mind. It's to be selfless and others focused, not self focused. You see, the reason why there is disunity in the body of Christ is because people too often spend a lot of time in an intellectual process thinking about me, thinking about number one. And they'll consider their own interests and they'll ponder their own interests instead of taking the time to consider other people's interests and thinking about them. They'll think long and hard about themselves and give little to no time thinking about others. But Paul is urging us to be others-minded. To be others-minded. Others-focused. And seeking the good of Of others. Henry Morris says this. He says, A modern psychological ploy is to attribute many personal and social problems to individual lack of self esteem. The scriptures, however, urge each of us to have other esteem, not self esteem. Our real problem is self centeredness and too much self esteem. However, Paul urges us to be lowly-minded, not high-minded, seeking the good of others, not concerned with ourselves. That's the action that we're to take. We're to be thinking consistently about others and their interests. We're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And that word regard there is in the present tense in the Greek, meaning that's, that it, this is an action that is to be continual or a habitual action that is going on in our lives. That we were always to be considering the interests of other people. We must always continually be regarding others as more important than ourselves. But there's a way in which this is to be done. And that goes back to our key word, which is what? Humility. Humility. Paul says that this is to be done with humility of mind. With humility of mind. Now this word in the Greek for humility is not found in any extra biblical Greek literature before the second century. It's not found. If you were to look at any extra biblical Greek literature from before the 2nd century, you will not find this word humility in the Greek. Why? Because the Greeks despised humility. They despised humility. And they thought that that was for the weak and the lowly people. They thought humility was a sign of weakness and so they despised it. They wouldn't even write about it. Because it's so despised. But Paul knows that that is exactly what God desires, right? God desires humility in His people. Paul knows the Old Testament Scriptures like Isaiah 2.12 which says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Paul knows that that's the heart of God. He knows the words of Jesus who said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He's a humble Savior. Humility is, as Andrew Murray said, the highest virtue of all virtues. Why? Because humility is that virtue by which we see ourselves for who we really are. And that is as nothing. As nothing. That we are nothing. In the 1800s, an evangelist and preacher named George Mueller cared for over 10,000 orphans and established over 100 day schools for children so that they could learn the Word of God. This man, when asked about the secret to his ministry, said this, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends, and since then I have studied to show myself approved only to God. What was the secret to his success in his ministry? He died to himself. He died to self. This is a humble man. And he was able to be used by God because he didn't think about himself. But he died to self. And who did he think of? He thought of others. He thought of these orphans. He thought of these children and how much they need to hear the Scriptures and how they need to be taught the Word of God. He died to self. Peter talks about humility using the illustration of clothes in 1 Peter 5. 5. In fact, turn over there with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. This is coming right off of Peter's exhortation to the elders. Fellow elders among the church who are to be shepherds of the flock of God. Exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain but with eagerness. And not lording it over those allotted to their charge but proving to be examples to the flock. What is he calling for? Humble leaders. Humility in the leaders of the church. But notice what he says in verse 5. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you, now he turns to the whole church and he says, now all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. What's he calling for here? That we are to clothe ourselves with humility. That's the illustration. That's the picture that we are to put on humility and clothe ourselves with humility. It's a call to action that we are to do. And the picture that Peter is using is that of a slave who puts on the apron and is ready to serve. That's the picture. The wearing of an apron would distinguish that slave from the freedman. And Peter is saying that we should put on or clothe ourselves with humility. Not as a garment so that everyone can see it. Because that's not humility, right? The moment that you realize or recognize or understand that you are humble is the moment you've lost it. We don't put on the apron or put on the humility so that we can show others how humble we are. That's false humility. That's called pride. But we put on humility so that we might serve others. We put on humility as an attitude that is a heart that is willing and ready to serve others. And isn't that what our Savior did? Isn't that what Christ did in the upper room when He washed His disciples' feet? Listen to John 13 verse 4 says this, Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And what did he do then? He began to wash his disciples' feet. The lowest position anyone could be in. He did it. He did it. Why? Because he was a humble servant. He put on humility. And that's what we're called to have. We're called to have a heart of humility and to put on humility that we might serve one another. We must, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. And when we do this, that will then produce unity in the church it'll produce unity in the body of christ turn back to philippians 2 let's look at our fourth action our fourth action that paul calls us to this is one this is a negative one one that we should shun and this this one is our own personal interests that we are to shun our own personal interests look at verse four he says do not merely look out for your own personal interests The Greek word there translated for look out for means to pay careful attention to or to to look out or to take notice of. And it has the idea of paying close attention to or giving special consideration for. And in a sense, Paul is repeating himself here as he just told us to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In some sense, he's just repeating himself. But here he's focusing on the attention that one gives to oneself. Paul has the idea here of looking attentively or fixing one's attention on their own personal interests. And think about if everyone showed up to church on Sunday morning and everyone was focused on their own personal agendas. What kind of church would we be? Church of chaos. A church that is disunified. A church full of people who are proud, wanting to do their own thing. It would be utter chaos and disunity. In fact, Paul was dealing with people like this while he was in prison at this very time that he's writing this letter to the Philippians. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 19, and notice what he says there. He says this, "'But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare.'" For they all, verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul is dealing here with people who were looking out for their own interests. We don't know who specifically Paul was referring to, but there was no one left of kindred spirit except for Timothy, Because all of the others who were there were seeking after their own personal interests. Their own desires, their own passions. They didn't have the selflessness of Timothy who would be genuinely concerned for the church at Philippi. They were seeking after their own interests. And so Paul had no one to go and minister to the saints at Philippi except for Timothy. Because all the others are concerned about themselves, about their own ministry, about their own interests, their own passions, their own desires. In fact, ministry opportunities were stifled because people had their own interests in mind. And that's what happens in the church when we begin to consider our own personal interests over the, uh, the interests of others, we're actually stifling ministry opportunities. Opportunities to serve one another, love one another, care for one another. Paul says back in our passage in verse 4, he says, don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Now notice that word merely in the Nazbi. If you have the NASB, you'll see that word merely there, italicized. Some of your translations might say, let each of you look not only for his own interests. But that word merely or not only has been supplied by the translators and is not there in the Greek. But why would they supply it? Why would they put it there? Well, because Paul is not calling here for some kind of asceticism or harsh treatment or self-mutilation where you stop caring about yourself. That's not what Paul is calling for here in this verse. When he says, don't, don't, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, he's saying, you don't have to begin to start some kind of self-mutilation, treating yourself harshly that you stop caring completely about yourself not what paul has in mind at all in fact paul may have had times when he was hungry and without food but that wasn't because he chose it it was because of the situation that that he was in he didn't choose it as some kind of spiritually mature life as if somehow i'm going to be more spiritually mature if i just let go of myself and stop caring about myself And begin to now treat myself harshly. I'm gonna starve myself. Look at God, how, how spiritually mature I am. No, Paul ate and he slept and he clothed himself, he took care of himself. And we should do the same thing so that we can then be used by God. One commentator says, Paul does not prohibit any interest in one's own affairs. It's the selfish preoccupation with oneself that he condemns. It's the being preoccupied with oneself continually, habitually, all the time that he condemns here. What's he saying here? He's saying our focus or or our attention or our aim should be on the interests of others. We need to be preoccupied with the interests of others, not our own interests. There's a fifth action, a fifth action that Paul gives here at the end of verse 4. This is something that we are to seek. This is a positive one. And he says, but also for the interests of others. Paul is calling for the Philippians to set their eyes and their minds on the interests of others. This is something that we are to seek after. Something that we are to do. An action, a positive action that we are to do. We're to care for the interests of others. There are many people that God has put into our lives. And we need to be concerned about them. Just look around church. There are plenty of people here for you to be concerned about, right? Plenty of people for you to have interest in. Serving one another, caring for one another. And while this is something that we can talk about all day long, this is something that is hard for us to apply in our lives, right? It's hard for us to apply this to our lives. Consider the interests of others. Consider others is more important than ourselves. We can talk about it a lot. But it's the application of this that we're to do. And so let me ask you, what are you doing to show that you're caring for the interests of others? How are you living your lives to show that you care for the interests of others? When you talk with brothers and sisters, do you only talk about self? Or are you asking questions with the intention of knowing their own interests? Listen, this is something that is hard to do because we live in a world that promotes what? Self. We live in a world that promotes self. It's all around us. Self, self, self. I hardly go on Facebook, but I went on there the other day. And as I was scrolling, it just hit me. Look at all of these people who are on here promoting self. Promoting self. This is what I did, this is where I went. This is the coffee shop I went to, as if somehow we're supposed to care. (laughs) (laughs) This is the book that I bought. I even saw one pastor post his own sermon on there. This is the sermon that I preached. Self, 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 self. It's all about the promotion of self And that's the world that we live in. Which makes it hard for us to take these truths and apply it to our lives, right? Because we're surrounded by a world that's telling us, self, it's all about you. Build your self-esteem. Life is all about you. And God is saying, no, it's not about you. It's about Him and it's about others. That's how we're to be living our lives. And we're to do all of this with a heart of humility. F.B. Meyer said this about humility in the Christian life. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on the shelves one above the other. And that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on the shelves one beneath the other. And that it's not a question of growing taller but of stooping lower. He figured it out. He understood what the Scriptures tell us to do, what God calls us to do, and how we are to live our lives. That we're not to be building ourselves up with selfish actions, but we're to be stooping lower as we serve one another as we care for one another. And when we're selfless and humble and regard others as more important than ourselves and look out for the interests of others, that is the environment in which you will see unity happen. Because it will be a place that is filled with joy. Joy to serve one another. Joy to care for one another. Joy to love one another. Seek after the interests of other people. When we live our lives with a heart of humility, seeking after this, we will see unity happen in the church. Paul wanted to see that in the church at Philippi. Because he knew that that is what would make his joy complete. May we take these truths and apply them to our lives as we continue to pursue and maintain unity in the body of Christ here at Faith Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that is focused on self and the interests of self, caring for self, telling us we need to think more about self. And yet your word tells us that that is not how we're to live. But we're to live our lives as Christ lived his life on this earth. As a humble servant considering others. We know that that was the mission that He came on. Not to be served, but to serve others. And He humbled Himself. And He is the greatest example of all. And how we are to live our lives. Father, help us to live humble lives. A heart that's full of humility. That we might care for the interests of others not seeking after our own interests, but the interest of others. And Lord, as we do that, we know that we will see unity in the body of Christ. Lord, I'm so grateful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here, who have a heart of humility and love for others. I'm so grateful for their heart that cares for one another. Lord, help us to maintain this heart, this unity in the body, and continue to grow even deeper in our love for one another, that we would grow even more in our unity as we are like-minded, being of the same mind. seeking the things of you as we serve one another. And Lord, may we do it all not to bring any glory to ourselves, but to bring all glory and honor and praise and adoration to your name and your name alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.